The RTS London Podcast. Hello. Welcome, everybody. Um, well, I'm delighted to be here today uh, to help focus our attentions on the environmental uh, protection and sustainability um, topics. This is something of a first in that RTS London and RTS Scotland have come together to bring us this sustainability-themed uh, industry panel today. And obviously a very timely moment to be doing that with COP26 finishing uh, last week. And uh, if, if you're like me, that's all the, all the amazing reporting there's been about COP26 has provided levels of concern, sense of hopelessness sometimes. Um, but the purpose of this uh, seminar really is to help address all of that, to provide information from experts, or I'll introduce in a moment, and to help us all understand what we can do to help. So the media and entertainment industry has come under particular focus through COP26. Uh, we enjoyed the, I thought, very informative panel with the leaders of the public service broadcasters uh, launching their content climate pledge. And really it shows that not only do we have a responsibility uh, as an industry to make sure that our uh, production activities are, um, are, are sustainable, but also we have a responsibility to help promote messages and to influence and educate people as producers um, of content. So I think it's um, hopefully going to be a very productive session. Um, the experts we bring in have a unique perspective from different areas uh, and we have uh, Kevin Keane who's uh, the Environment Transport Correspondent for BBC Scotland. Um, we have Chloe Fletcher from BBC Research and Development, a sustainability data scientist. And we have Karis Taylor from Albert. And finally, uh, last but not least, uh, Joanna Langan from Raise the Roof Productions. So uh, as for myself, I'm uh, uh, Richard Parsons. I'm the COO of Sony Pictures TV International Productions, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but essentially, we uh, operate a portfolio of businesses, production businesses outside of the U.S., and uh, there are about 18 companies around about 12 different territories, uh, headquartered here in London and uh, predominantly in the UK. So um, I will also uh, give a little bit of an overview of some of the activities that Sony Pictures and other US studios have been doing to give a perspective from that angle too. But far more importantly, um, yeah, hearing from the experts is what I know you're uh, tuned in for. So I think if we could start, Kevin, with you, as you've now just been, I know, up in COP26, I know that you've also uh, uh, covered a number of other uh, climate conferences. And um, so, yeah, fascinated to hear what you made of COP26 and, and the themes and points of interest arising. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the third COP that I've been involved with. Um, I've covered previous COPs in Bonn in Germany and also in uh, Madrid in Spain two years ago, the last one. And I was also at the pre-COP conference and youth summit in Milan about a month before the COP as well. So, um, yeah, a bit of a build up to it, but none of them were anything like as interesting to cover as the one in Glasgow, not least because it was on our doorstep but also because it was 
the single biggest event of any kind logistically to be staged in the UK. So the fact that it happened on our doorstep and it was about something that really has rocketed in recent years in terms of its importance to the audiences um, and in, in terms of its importance to us as an industry to have to not only report on what's coming out of it, but but take note and, and also adapt the way that we um, do our own jobs was quite significant as well. So um, it really was a, a kind of a quite throbbing environment that the, the two-day World Leaders Summit at the beginning we thought was going to be the peak of it in terms of interest, um, in terms of um, the kind of most theme levels of the people that we're expecting. But then in walks people like Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and then the biggest draw of the whole two weeks was on the second Monday, which was when Barack Obama um, arrived in town. And actually, from a journalistic perspective, there were more journalists uh, in the COP on that day to report on his um, utterings than on the, any of the other days, including the two-day World Leaders Summit, where we had 120 plus world leaders here from, from all over the globe. So um, it, was quite, it was quite an interesting thing to cover from that perspective. And then obviously we build up, built up to the, the peak of it on, on Saturday night, um, which ended up being quite a, a long day all round. And I'm only just starting to recover from that. But that's when we started to get you know, the detail of exactly what, um, what, what it was going to mean and, and what kind of changes it would involve for all of us. And it's difficult given that the entire focus of that deal really was about coal power to see how that affects us. Um, as an industry, but actually what it's starting um, and what it will culminate in, in, in 12 months time is going to be a plan by every nation in the world to start to wean us off fossil fuels. And that is the thing that's going to start making a difference. It, it kind of ended up being glossed over a bit at the end because of the coal thing and because it was essentially being kicked down the road by a year. Um, but I think it is going to have to start to be um, the kind of starting gun for a lot of us. And actually, even at the start of the conference and the days leading up to it, when the UK government was talking about all big organizations and corporations having to start reporting on their um, carbon footprints, that's that was an important deal. It wasn't part of the COP itself. It was kind of a side event. But that was an important moment, I think, where, you know, organizations that aren't already thinking about it are going to have to start, you know, in a mandatory way, thinking about their carbon footprint. So while I was there, I did manage to find a few spare minutes to do a bit of filming and to give you a bit of a, a taster of what like was like in the Blue Zone. Welcome to the Blue Zone at the heart of the COP26 climate conference here in Glasgow that's been discussing the future of the planet. This has been the biggest conference of world leaders that the UK has ever hosted. And for broadcasters, it's been massive too, with press, radio and TV journalists in Scotland from all over the world. BBC News has thought really hard about its carbon footprint at this event. It's got staff doubling up and working on multiple programmes where they wouldn't normally to keep down the total numbers. 
there's a ban on people flying here domestically and all those coming here without kit are coming by train. The BBC's two presentation studios were built using recycled materials that will be reused once they've been dismantled. All these efforts helped BBC News achieve its first ever Albert certification for a single story. The event has already been criticised for its huge carbon footprint, bigger than any COP conference that's gone before it. There are 25,000 people registered to be here. Of those, 3,800 are from the media. The BBC's hope is that this event and how we covered it can influence future deployment decisions across the operation. Hearing no objections, it is so decided. Fantastic. And it's fascinating and com congratulations on getting that done and getting the, the Albert certificate. Um, can I just ask, you, in terms of the policy, do you see you know, policy, further policy moves to which will impact production? Um, in that, yes, from that. I, I think so, yeah. I think everything's going to change is the reality now. Um, specifically here in Scotland, um, and I know this is the case for the UK as well, but I mainly follow the situation in Scotland. Um, we're at the point now where 50% of our greenhouse gas emissions um, have been removed. So we're 50% we're away from our net zero target, and it's roughly the same, I think, for the UK. Um, but the report from the Climate Change Committee a year or two back said that in, in Scotland, all of the low-hanging fruits had now been picked. So actually, it's going to be more difficult for everybody, companies, businesses, individuals, corporations now to be able to, to decarbonize their operations in that, um, in, in that second half of that emissions journey. So that I think is going to have to lead to some quite significant changes. Um, I, in, in Scotland, the biggest emission source, which I think is different to the UK as a whole is in transport. So that was a big move and, and actually the COP itself kind of indirectly led to some of these policy decisions being taken within BBC Scotland about trying to decarbonize our transport footprint. So um, about three months before the COP, um, we replaced about 10 diesel pool vehicles with um, fully electric ones after a long process of um, uh, scrutinizing the impact that that would have, particularly on news. These are specifically vehicles for news where there's always a big fear that any change is likely to impact on our ability to, to take on the competition. But, you know, we've seen the likes of Sky taking this issue very seriously. You know, they have their own dedicated um, nightly TV program about climate change now. They were the, one of the sponsors of COP. You know, it's a big deal for them. So I think, you know, reassured by that, the BBC has started to take some quite important decisions. Um, and I've got one of those electric vehicles and I've been, I've done about five and a half thousand miles across Scotland, which is, you know, quite what the, the cities are quite far spread far apart and often in quite rural areas, some islands and so forth. And we've kind of managed to prove in that time that, you know, delivering the news in a more sustainable way is achievable and doesn't affect our ability to be competitive. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I'd be fascinated to come back to you a bit later on and to discuss the kind of climate content pledge and your thoughts around what the, 
what our, our leaders in the industry were saying. But before we do that, we might leave that for a bit later on, because I'd like to bring in Chloe now, if, if I may. Because uh, I'm fascinated, Chloe, to hear more from you about really the, the more technical side of the you know, environmental performance of the technology we use to enjoy our media platforms. Um, this really is something which uh, is of, um, I think, um, often has, has been overlooked perhaps by the industry and one which um, would be very useful to get your insights in. Yeah, so we've been doing several cruises of research over the last few years to understand the environmental impact of different media services that we offer at the BBC, and the biggest of which has been looking at what the energy footprint is of BBC television services. So we had several key objectives that we wanted to address in doing this research, the first of which was quantifying how much energy is used to prepare, distribute and consume BBC television services. So this means not just looking at the energy use uh, that we have a direct responsibility for, such as our in-house processes or data centres at the BBC, or even indirectly through our supply chains, such as transmitter networks or the internet. But we also wanted to consider and understand um, what the energy use is from the consumption of our content. So that's by audiences watching BBC TV in their homes. And then secondly, we wanted to understand how that energy might change in the future, looking at different scenarios and projections. And then we also lastly wanted to determine what the largest drivers were of this energy use. So figuring out which components within this big system that we're looking at are the biggest hotspots and where we as an organization and an industry need to focus our efforts to reduce our energy use and emissions as well as understanding how different platforms in which you can watch BBC television compare with one another. So that might be comparing terrestrial, satellite, cable. Uh, we also looked at BBC iPlayer as well as IPTV. So that's kind of UV boxes and stuff like that. So initially we did a baseline study to calculate the energy footprint of BBC TV for 2016. And we've since done subsequent studies on following years to monitor this progress. Uh, the most recent being uh, 2020 to 2021 financial year. And just to give a bit of an overview of what I mean when I'm talking about this BBC television system, uh, we put together this system map, which gives a very high level view of the different components that make up our television services. So hopefully that will come on your screen now. Brilliant. Um, and this shows the different processes that take place after content production. So we didn't actually include uh, producing TV content within our scope but everything else that happens after there through to audiences viewing the BBC on their respective devices were factored in. And so in the top left, um, in coloured in blue in those shared broadcast services, these are the components which represent what we call preparation. So that will be video playout, uh, encoding, multiplexing and regional insertion, kind of techie stuff. Uh, and then the remaining upper half in green represents the distribution chain. So that encompasses the terrestrial transmitter network, satellite and cable infrastructure and the internet. So that will be our cloud providers and the internet network itself. And lastly, the bottom half of what we considered uh, represents all the different devices you can use to watch BBC television services, whether that's a TV, set-top box, uh, computer, phone, tablet, you name it. Um, so this is kind of the system that we looked at in order to evaluate what the energy footprint is of BBC television. Now that's fascinating. I think the... Um you know, certainly to understand uh, how all those different components um, uh, break down is is fascinating. Um, in terms of the, you know, how, to, how does that, just uh, the work you're conducting on, on energy showcase the kind of impact of our broadcast systems? 
So uh, if I can show my the most recent results I've done for the financial year 2020-21, that'll probably be most relevant. So that kind of runs from April to March. Um, I'll show on the slide. Otherwise, I think me throwing yeah. numbers around too much is going to be a lot. Um, so if you put the next slide up, thank you. Uh, we found that BBC television system in total uses about 1,943 gigawatt hours of electricity, which I'm sure just sounds like a bit of a random number. So to put that into a bit of perspective, that's about 0.7% of UK electricity use for that year and about 0.1% of CO2 equivalent emissions. And that's actually just for the BBC, so not um, the whole media industry as a whole. And, and this is actually an, uh, an energy reduction of about 3% since we did that 2016 baseline. So we have seen a marginal decrease in the total energy. And hopefully, as you can see from the red parts of the bars, the biggest driver of this energy use has been from the consumption. So that's kind of home routing equipment and uh, viewing devices in which you can watch BBC content. And this represented about 94% of the total energy in the system. So far outweighing uh, energy use for preparation or distribution. And interestingly, when we drilled down into it, uh, there were two different classes of devices which represented the majority of this energy use. The first of which was televisions, which were responsible for about 46% of the energy, and the second being set-top boxes, which were marginally smaller at 45%. So clearly these were the two biggest hitters from the whole system in terms of energy use. As well, you can see that each of the different platforms consumed different amounts of energy, the biggest here being satellite, primarily due to there being a sizable audience for satellite and the use of set-top boxes. And then the smallest was BBC iPlayer, which was largely due to a smaller audience size and the use of lower-powered devices such as smartphones and tablets. However, you know, I have said that audience size is a big factor here. And as you can see from the next slide, um, the majority of BBC content is viewed on terrestrial and satellite platforms. Nearly two thirds of viewing is done on these. So, of course, you would expect these two platforms to consume more energy than the remaining others. So perhaps a better way to compare them would be to look at the energy use per hour of watching. And what this does is it gives us a bit of an energy intensity for each of the different platforms. And when we do that, as you can see on the next slide, um, platforms like satellite, cable and IT. IPTV have very similar energy intensities of around 110 to 120 watt hours per viewer hour. And this falls, uh, slightly falls sub 100 watt hours for BBC iPlayer and about 57 watt hours for terrestrial viewing. And the reason terrestrial is much lower than the other platforms is largely due to viewing not typically requiring the use of a set top box. And even when they are in use, their power consumption tends to be a fair bit lower than the other more complex set-top boxes. Uh, and also the terrestrial transmitter network uses kind of the similar, uh, the same amount of power, no matter how many people are viewing it. So unlike something like BBC iPlayer, where the more viewers there are, the more energy consumption there is in the internet network, which means that if the terrestrial audience were to fall, we might see that this energy intensity of terrestrial creeping up slightly, which is why we kind of look at these values on a rolling basis to see how they're changing. And honestly, there, there's so much to unpack from the research we've done. So the really key findings for us have been pinpointing that TVs and set-top boxes are the biggest components kind of responsible for 91% of the energy footprint. Um, and 
Initially, we saw that set-top boxes were uh, consuming more energy than TVs. And actually, we've seen a trend of them becoming slightly more efficient year on year, particularly the standby power of the devices. Whereas on the flip side, TVs are consuming more and more power year on year. People are wanting bigger screens. People are wanting higher resolutions, which is what's leading to this increase in power consumption. So we're trying to figure out as an industry how we can come together to address this trend. Um, that's fascinating, isn't it? And uh, as you say, that makes total sense as the uh, terrestrial broadcast uh, people shift. I can imagine that those numbers will go up as a proportion of um, the, the power that's going into that or it's a fixed amount of, of power, I imagine, going into that, um, that output. But obviously, when we are looking at this world, we, the, as we move towards a, a behavioral patterns focusing on streaming, um, can you tell us a bit more about how how that's going to change the landscape? Definitely. So looking at the environmental impact of streaming has actually been a really hot topic over the last couple of years. Lots of media outlets have been publishing articles claiming that video streaming is a very uh, carbon intensive activity. And, you know, it's possible that some of those headlines stemmed from an interview that was conducted in 2019 where somebody incorrectly stated that video streaming produced 3.2 kilograms of CO2 equivalent emissions per hour of viewing, um, which is equivalent to driving about 11 miles in your average petrol car. So really quite a significant number for just one hour of watching a program. And to put that into a bit of perspective with our results, this figure is over 100 times the carbon intensity we estimated for BBC iPlayer, um, where we kind of estimate it was roughly equivalent to 155 metres in your average petrol car, so quite a bit lower. Um, and the source of this original carbon intensity value have since acknowledged their error and republished an estimate which is 10 times lower than previously. However, the misconceptions surrounding the environmental impact of online streaming providers have really continued to persist. So uh, to provide a bit more of a realistic picture of the carbon impact of streaming, uh, a collaborative initiative between academics and several streaming providers, including the BBC, um, known collectively as DIMPACT, commissioned the Carbon Trust uh, to conduct an independent review uh, to put to bed what the carbon emissions are uh, produced from one hour of video streaming. So the Carbon Trust published their results in a white paper earlier this year and estimated an approximate carbon intensity of 65 grams of CO2 equivalent emissions per viewer hour which is similar to using a microwave for three and a half minutes or boiling a kettle for three minutes. So, you know, quite small in the grand scheme of all the things that we do in our lives. Um, and actually, this estimate for video streaming was nearly double what we estimated for BBC iPlayer. However, this is mainly through the data that's been inputted, such as uh, the estimates for the average power consumption of TVs being different between the studies. So, we're not saying that BBC iPlayer is any more efficient than other streaming providers. It's more the methodology that's been applied to this. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, a factor of two difference is fairly negligible, as both are pretty low carbon figures anyway. And between the two studies, the broad conclusions were also consistent. It's the viewing devices and the home routers that comprise the largest part of the footprint. Similar stories to what we saw across the rest of the broadcast chain. Um, and these make up about 75 to 90% of the energy use and emissions in the whole system. And this really highlights the importance of bringing about systemic change, um, particularly in reducing the power consumption for consumer electronic devices. Um, and also, actually, both studies explored the energy intensities of different devices that can be used to stream video content. 
Um, I can show you another slide here for some results we had for BBC iPlayer. So as you can see, the energy intensities varied hugely across the different devices we looked at. Um, and this makes sense, as we've already indicated that consumer devices are the dominant driver of this energy use, meaning that if you're going to use a lower powered device, this will likely lead to a substantial reduction in the energy required. Um, interestingly, smartphones and tablets, uh, the devices are so low powered that more energy is consumed per hour of watching by the internet network and your home router than the device you're using itself. Whereas this is definitely not true if you're viewing on a computer or a television. Um, as these use about three to 10 times more energy per hour of watching than a smartphone or a tablet. And I know maybe a takeaway from this, you might be thinking, oh, I should watch on the lower powered device. I'm not saying that we should all instead stream video on smartphones to save energy as this is not really practical or a feasible thing to do, particularly for tens to hundreds of millions of people. Um, so instead, we really need to think about how we can systemically reduce the power consumption of devices through top-down initiatives and through collaboration as an industry. That's really what we should be focusing on here. And for consumers, uh, the carbon impact here compels in comparison to your other everyday activities like your transport, your dietary require all your choices or your domestic energy supply. Uh, so the best action you could take if you really want to be particularly conscious about your TV viewing would actually be to do something like switch to a renewable energy supplier to ensure the electricity you're using uh, are not contributing to greenhouse gas emissions, which would, of course, have a huge knock-on effect to other aspects of your life beyond just that TV. Excellent. Yes, wise words. Um, I think that's, that's interesting because, you know, certainly there's kind of mythology that builds up about kind of streaming versus broadcast. And actually, yes, you've um, helped us understand exactly what the nuances are there. So thank you for that. If I might turn now from uh, delivery to production itself, I think it'd be um, useful, Karis, now if I could ask you to tell us a bit about Albert. And I think obviously a lot of the people, uh, the audience here will know all about Albert, but I'm sure some don't. So if you could start by giving us a, a little explanation of the organization's purpose and and how we how you measure sustainable productions yeah sure thanks Richard um yeah I'm at risk of teaching people to suck eggs I guess given the audience here is um, going to be probably heavily tv production um heavy so um but I, <coughs> I'll just canter through <coughs> excuse me I've got a post cock cold um, so, uh, excuse me if I'm spluttering occasionally. Um, so Albert's been running for 10 years now. Um, and for most of those 10 years, we've had two aims. The first of which is focused on production activities and reducing the impacts of those. Um, and the second is to help the creative, um, creative community within the industry be empowered to know how to put sustainability on the screen um, to bring audiences along on the journey too. Um, we're most well known, I think, for the carbon calculator toolkit that we offer, um, but we also um, we, we do a lot else beyond that. Um, I'd say that everything we do is falls into sort of three main buckets. So we educate the industry. Um, so partly that is through the calculator. Um, you can't really reduce what you don't know that you have. Um, so measuring is really important. Um, so you see where the high impact areas are. Um, uh, but we also offer free training to the whole industry. 
um, and we partner with um, universities to provide a module for um, degrees as well. Um, we enable the distributor, but also an offsetting scheme, um, shared renewable energy um, schemes, and also just through our convenings. So we are run through a directorate and a consortium of um, broadcasters and producers. Um, we now have a sports uh, consortium specifically to look at the challenges that they face with decarbonisation um, and a news consortium because, you know, the challenges that they face are particularly um, unique. Um, and then um, we also celebrate. So we provide um, the certification and board logo um, so that people can proudly say, you know, that they've got a sustainable production. Um, uh, we also elevate uh, case studies and we're increasingly talking to awards bodies uh, about how that they can, how they can embed sustainable production activities into their content and also think about the, the creative opportunity at hand um, and, and the editorial. What, you know, whilst we wouldn't get involved in the editorial process and it's not appropriate for us to do so, people don't want to embed sustainability into their content and I would argue there's a good opportunity to do so and um, we can we can help advise on that too so that's a whistle stop yeah no, well that's a great whistle stop thank you and I'm sure there were elements there as you said people knew and other elements they didn't but I was, I was particularly interested as you said on the editorial piece um we heard in the uh content climate pledge uh the focus upon uh all producers to start trying to think about how we should um, you know, serve the need for the broadcasters to, to, to push out more uh, themes around the climate change in their production. So I think that is going to be an area where um, hopefully there's going to be greater focus going forward. And um, it's good to know that that's an area which Albert can help uh, producers and, and uh, platforms out there. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a huge focus for us um, now. I think it's been our second aim for several years. Um, and we're really proud to have helped convene that pledge. Um, we, I, I think it's important to say it doesn't include news and it's to try and get people's thinking beyond that to help. Um, I mean, the creative community is doing a lot of great work in this space. And it's partly it's, you know, the pledge was to give a signal to them to say that there's an appetite for this content now. Um, the rate and scale of transformation that we're about to go through over the next few years um, is huge and it's going to affect um and so it can't be left to the reserve of natural history documentaries to motivate or news um news coverage of um the effects of climate change um it's really really important that we're talking to audiences that enjoy all different types of content whether um you're um sort of avid football fan or if you're um just into soaps there should be uh empowering optimistic stories which can show you the solutions that are available to you now um and then these this this stuff can be weaved into that content very easily um <clears throat> there's a good argument for the need for this um it's it's not just something that um we albert have got to be in our bonnet about and we feel that you know everyone should be talking about it just just because we do like i say the rate and scale of transformation is it's huge um, but there is also um, a lot of research coming out now about um, uh, audiences feeling unempowered, um, anxious, and actually fatalistic about what climate change may mean. And that's an indication that people just aren't armed with the solutions. They don't know what to do. They're just not empowered. 
um, Sky actually launched a report um, during COP, I think it's on, on the first day of COP, um, about the role of broadcasters in, in nudging behaviours. And they found, um, they did a sample across Europe and they found 70% of um, this survey are worried about climate change um, and 80% agreed that broadcasters have a role in arming them with the solutions and nudging behaviour. Um, so the, the pledge is a sort of an acknowledgement of the, the responsibility to do that, but also that there's a huge creative opportunity here um, and the industry can be more relevant than it ever has been. Fantastic. Thank you. And a quick question, if I may, on, on incentives. Is there, do you think there's going to be no further uh, ways to incentivize productions to implement changes? I think, um, I think there's a lot of uh, incentive. I mean, climate change is one very good incentive in itself. I mean, there, there have been um, a few uh, sports events over the past couple of years that have had to be cancelled as a result of um, changing weather patterns and the effects of climate change. Um, there's also the incentive that um, consumers are much more aware of uh, their choices um, and their expectations on business. Um, there are cost savings associated with some of this, um, particularly when the industry collaborates. Um, we found that with bringing down the cost of the green energy um, scheme that we, we provide. Um, and we're increasingly looking at shared infrastructure solutions. Um, so last year, there was a report published um, by ourselves, BFI and Arup, um, on the Screen New Deal, we called it. And it was looking at the long-term infrastructure solutions for the industry um, and what the physical spaces will require. Um, and from that, we're looking at a kind of regional transformation plan. Um, this is looking at systemic change because there's obviously there's, we can do a huge amount um, as individuals but we do need the underlying infrastructure to shift. And as a, a collective mass, our industry, by asking for these solutions, um, we're going to affect um, markets and economies in different regions um, to help shift the dial and um, enable a lot of these um, shared solutions for us all to, to carry on decarbonising. Um, and I think it's worth saying as well that some of the key UK broadcasters have started to mandate um, Albert certification. That's a strong incentive. Um, and in the long term, you know, we are all going to have to eliminate our impacts um, in, one, in one form or other. And I think our industry, because people take note of what we're doing, we catalyse change um, and then we, we put it to mass audiences. We, we have to be leading the way in this. Um, and I think we've got a lot to be proud of. Yeah. Uh certainly agree with that and i think you know that, that was heartening to see the i guess the kind of formalization of that in the in the pledges given at cop 26 thanks very much indeed for for that i should uh, remind people watching that if you've got questions for the panel then please uh, do submit them you can use youtube chats or uh, all the twitter feeds and we will try to um save some time at the end to put questions to the panel um before i turn to uh, to joanna um I'd like just to say a little bit about how the US studios have been approaching uh, sustainability. Obviously, with a particular focus on on Sony, where I've been for the last for the last nine years. Obviously, Sony Corporation is is a little different from uh, other organisations in that we have a number of different businesses, uh, and as such, 
uh, back in 2010, Sony Corporation had announced a road to zero program, uh, focusing across the manufacturing elements of the business, um, as much as, um, the entertainment arms where we are and really looking to align the goals, uh, with all of the, uh, climate science, uh, 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 uh rules and, and particularly in, in compliance with the Paris agreements at the time, uh, as at the same time in, in 2010, the sustainable, uh, production alliance in the U S, um, uh, pulled together, which is essentially an alliance of the studios and Netflix and Amazon had developed and launched a, a green production guide which is an online toolkit, which is, um, in place to, uh, reduce physical production and, you know, very much similar to some of the themes that, uh, Albert, uh, promotes the key elements are very much training, planning, measuring and reporting. Um, and together with that, it sets out a, a number of different kind of checklists and means by which, uh, productions can uh, ensure that they are addressing, uh, some of the challenges, uh, of our, of our business. And there's some, some very, you know, things ranging from, uh, some very useful, uh, checklists and things like, you know, making sure there's, uh, you know, there's been a ban on styrofoam for a long time in place already. There's been, uh, initiatives to make sure that, um, that there's a no idling rule on sets and on, uh, in the studios. Uh, to save on uh, CO2 emissions, um, and and through that, the uh, there's been a you know, successful implementation of that, and particularly in the US and uh, across both film and TV since 2019, uh, we've achieved sustainable production status um, across all of the uh, our 100% uh, record uh, in the US and um, in uh, across film and TV challenge now is to uh, push that out into our international operations, which we're in the process of doing in EMEA and LATAM in, in particular. And the goal that uh, we've set is to achieve the same level of 100% production by 2025. In some territories, that's going to be easier than in others. Uh, that's for sure. And in, in the UK, obviously, with uh, Albert having led the way for uh, such a long time, We've got a, a, a pretty good, uh, good record. Some of the other territories need to, um, need to catch up, uh, but we're confident that we can do that. And particularly with the learnings, I think we've had from the, from the U S, uh, but we have, you know, uh, we have a roving program really of, of evolving the, um, guidelines and the guidance we can give to our production partners to make sure that they can, um, uh, they can set and maintain sustainable production status. So as an example, we've now got say, uh, a number of sustainability leaders who do a great job monitoring, um, and, uh, ensuring that all of the support necessary, uh, is given to the producers on the ground to, um, help them to, uh, comply. And we've got procurement teams again, who are very much focused and have a trained to deliver, um, uh, solutions to, um, to some of the sourcing requirements on, on production. So I guess the kind of key messages, I, I, I think it's, there has been a lot going on. Um, we can, you know, I'm delighted that, you know, Sony has been part of the alliance that's, you know, led to 
um, an early and an active involvement in this. Um, you know, as a large organization, it's important that we demonstrate that we are, we are accountable for our actions and we need to take responsibility for our actions. And that's exactly what, um, we are looking to do, but there is of course a lot more to, that needs to be done. We don't, um, pretend otherwise. And, you know, particularly the challenges, I think, as I look at our business is the, uh, the international uh, elements of the business, whether it's, uh, businesses we have in territories such as Russia or China, where you know, different rules apply or where it's, where there are, there are international co-productions where you'll, you are, um, producing in, in different territories. We need to continue the journey to make sure that all of our outputs, uh, is compliant. And also, as we were mentioning earlier, I think the other challenge I see is, is trying to, uh, improve the, uh, the, um, weaving in kind of themes related to climate into the content itself, the editorial elements of the, of our of responsibilities as media companies is, um, one that is interesting. And I think, um, it is a challenge that we should all, uh, hopefully be able to focus on going forward. So, um, yeah, happy to take any questions, but I won't, um, go on any more about the kind of US studio kind of and Sony angles, but rather, uh, Joanna, if we could ask you to tell us a little bit about, um, your activities at Raise the Roof. And for those who don't know, Raise the Roof, it is one of the leading kind of factual indie, uh, producers, uh, in the UK. Um, yeah, John, if you could, could tell us uh, about you know, what it's like with boots on the ground. Yes, yeah, the later two. And I work at Basic Productions. I work with their flagship show, Kirsten Phil's Love It or List It. And we're a predominantly kitchen based show. And uh, we're looking into forging areas, which are travel, disposable materials, and energy. And within that, we look at how we can reduce, what we can reuse, uh, and what we can recycle. Uh, one of our trickier areas is travel. As mentioned, we are location-based. Um, so, yes, a lot of journeys to and from. We try to reduce this. We look to use local crew where we can. And we look to use public transport, trains. Uh, one of our presenters uh, is a very big fan of public transport for train. And our other presenter, our own street vehicle, is a hybrid car. Um, so he uses that on screen. And also our team, when they travel to location, they um, also travel in the hybrid car. That's helped to bring it down. We are looking to options for maybe we can actually increase this to a full electric car. Um, for an energy point of view, any lighting we use LED and um, energy light bulbs. We use rechargeable batteries. Um, our post facility uses 100% renewable energy. We've moved on to an online platform for our paperwork. So that is selling the distributed online. So it's helping to really reduce our printing and photocopy. And also just coming down to even looking at catering and reusable water bottles, biodegradable cutlery. Uh, so we're looking at all the options that we can, we can add in. Fantastic. And has, um, presumably COVID has made that a lot more complicated 
Has that, um, has that kind of helped in any way or just made it more difficult? Um, it's a new challenge. It's just a new challenge, I think. At first, it was a bit trickier, but our travel has gone up and it's at moments um, for the safety of our teams and our crew. We have them traveling in, if they do travel by car, we have them traveling individually. Um, but PPE, as we've got to know more about virus, um, we've been able to be reactive with that and our teams have reusable masks. We're looking to biodegradable wipes, sanitizers that have slightly harsh and um, sort of less harsh chemicals for the environment. Um, one of the key areas is virtual meetings. We're doing a lot of virtual meetings like this, which is reducing our travel and um, working from home quite often. So the carbon emissions were short during and it started to reduce. Yes, that's no, interesting. I- I hadn't appreciated quite how large a portion of production emissions generally are generated by travel. And that is the one positive upside. I think COVID is people's habits have changed. Um, and yeah, certainly on the kind of corporate side of things, um, which is a good thing. Uh, and I want to jump, jump in, Richard, and just um, let you know that we found from last year's data from um, the calculator that, Carbon, uh, the carbon emissions associated with an hour of TV went down to 4.4 tonnes per hour um, from 9.2. Um, and that, that is largely because of the reduction in travel from COVID. Um, so that shows you um, how significant it is. And Joanna, can I ask, in, in terms of the attitudes of, the, of crew and talent, do you find that um, you still meet with some resistance or do you uh, think that people are really coming, coming on board with understanding why uh, when we're making these efforts? Um, I, I don't think there's a resistance. I think um, it's about making people feel informed and empowered. Uh, we start, um, the start of our production, we have what we call a startup meeting. Uh, one of the focusing areas is that we actually talk about Albert and our sustainability. And so we start it from the start of the production and it's just encouraging and supporting the team and uh, letting them know that even any little changes made it made the location are really appreciated it and really helping us to um to become more sustainable. Yeah. So I think yeah, I think everyone is really encouraged. I think it's knowing that similar to when you go to the shop and you take a bag to the supermarket, that can also be done on location. You can also um support in those ways we go and we use our water coffee cups. All those kind of things. So yeah, excellent. Thank you. So um, I wanted to yeah perhaps turn to uh, some uh, some some questions now. And as I said, if you've got questions, please do uh, send them in on the um, YouTube chat or via the kind of Twitter feeds. But um, maybe I can kind of kick things off. I mean, on an individual level, I mean. Chloe, it'd be interesting perhaps to hear from you. What should, should we as consumers really be looking out for in our daily habits? Um, I'm not necessarily much of an advocate of consumer. Obviously, consumers do have a role to play in terms of bringing down emissions. Uh, and when I'm talking about our research, I preferably like to focus on systemic change because when we're thinking about consumers, there are tens to hundreds of millions of people and affecting behavioural change and getting people to uh, make sustainable choices can be really challenging. And in terms of TV viewing, 
the main things that a consumer would be responsible for would be uh, not watching TV, essentially, or turning their set-top box off when it's not in use, which they can take uh, minutes to turn back on when you need them. And these things might not be practical. So I suppose when it's there are choices available to pick a lower powered TV, if that if that is an option to you, um, take making use of eco modes in your set top boxes, making use of eco modes in televisions. Um, but really, I feel the focus should be through uh, collaborative change at the system level. So thinking about what we can do as an industry to reduce the power consumption of devices and throughout the broadcast chain as well is where I would advocate for the best focus. Interesting. Thank you. Yes, I mean, I, I was actually enjoyed Tim David. I remember saying on the um, panel he was on how, yes, he, he was trying to promote people just to change the settings on their smart TVs because they're in the eco settings. And it's, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, so there are kind of small things that can be done, but obviously that's yeah, that's it's the systemic change that is more important on the on the wider wider scheme of things. So Kevin, what's um, can I turn to you and ask you? Um, re- interested between uh, you know in 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 your world, the, there's a conflict almost between the desire to kind of stay informed and the desire to kind of make a make a difference. And as we also described earlier, that's, um, I think, uh, Karis was mentioning, you know, that the need to find the balance in, in reporting between, um, informing people and scaring them and making them switch off. I think that's, that's an interesting area there. I wonder what your views are. Yeah. Interestingly, um, I made a documentary for BBC Scotland in March, a kind of pre-cop program about um, climate change and what people can do themselves to um, tackle climate change. And that was a a key fundamental question throughout is we kind of sought to highlight some of the big impacts that we were facing just here in Scotland from things like wildfires and and drought and, and, and problems like that. But actually we tried really desperately not to not to go too far with those things and to scare people one to make them feel like this this thing is kind of out of control and that you can't um you can't stop it you can't do anything about it but also then by interspersing some of some of those things with you know individual choices that people can make and and i completely agree with chloe that actually the biggest thing um, that you can do is is in the ballot box because it's about systemic changes. That's where the bulk of this is going to be. But actually, you know, individual decisions that people make about what car they drive, what food they choose to eat, um, where they get their their energy for, from. These are all in, like very important indicators that send signals to politicians or to corporations or organizations who ultimately will be the ones making these big systemic changes that actually we as consumers take this thing really, really seriously. So, you know, it it is a big question. It is ultimately all corporations because that's where the vast majority of this stuff sits, but it's also down to us as consumers to make those decisions. And I think we as an industry also have an important role to play in in you know we we you know we we the bbc but but broadcast more generally you know we provide people like david attenborough that set the scene for what these problems are but you know i feel quite deeply that we also need to be leading by example in the changes that we 
make. And that's why it's interesting to see what Chloe was saying, that actually the production side of this is a tiny proportion compared with the distribution of it. But actually, if we can, if we can show and demonstrate that we're making the news, for example, in a way that, that is sustainable and where, you know, we are, you know, not, not, not now slipping back into some of the changes that came about from the pandemic that have been quite positive. Like, for example, you know, we use a lot of experts clips in our TV news packages now that come through Skype or Zoom or FaceTime and certainly certainly here there's no desire to go back to that much more carbon intense way of gathering all of that news material by sending crews on you know potentially 120 mile round trips to get 15 seconds worth of a tv news clip so you know it's keeping hold of those good practices that have come out of the pandemic and making sure now that we don't slip back into those old ways thank you we've got a question from the audience um joanna perhaps i might ask you to help the question is how do we influence the public through our tv programming i suppose it's the products that we use on screen it's what it's visible to to the audience on screen we do it's finding a balance it's finding a balance between our editorial guidelines and not appearing to be advertising any particular brand but also showing that we are using certain incomes and more sustainable Albert recently carried all more about this than me, um, and I introduced a key area called product placement, and it is looking more editorially at the creative side of how can we weave this story in and make it uh, more visible for everyone to see. Um, yeah, so we're excited to see how that's going to to turn out, and I think it is going to help to merge a little bit more the editorial side with more practical logistical side of how we farm or sustainable on set. Can I can I jump in there? Yeah. Um sorry I lost my signal before. I don't know whether you noticed or if I got away with that. But I'll, I'll uh, if I can I'll just jump in on that on on planet placement. Um I, I think there's there's a number of different ways that we can we can help with putting it on screen. There's normalizing sustainable behaviors and not normalizing unsustainable behaviors. Um, we've typically as a society glamorized and aspirationalized a lot of behaviors that aren't sustainable in the long term, at least with the technology that we have at the moment. Um, but there's also um, a way to embed this stuff in storylines. And it doesn't have to be catastrophizing um, kind of cli-fi um, stuff. It, it can be normal human stories that we're encountering right now. Um, if you are a gas engineer, um, approaching retirement, you might think with the conversation that's beginning to happen more, more commonly in, in sort of uh, common conversations that you, you might have just with your friends on the pub about um, whether you uh, get a gas boiler or a ground source heat pump or what have you. And, and you're thinking, well, I might have to retrain. And I was sort of hoping to get to retirement without having to do that. We are seeing, as I say, an increase in climate anxiety um, I guess that's a form of climate anxiety, but that's just sort of they're worried about the, their skills and their job and how long it, you know, how long it will take to retrain and what impact that might have on their livelihood and their legitimate concerns about the transition that we're about to face. Um, and our industry can embed storylines, um, particularly you can imagine that perhaps in a soap. Um, there are lots of opportunities like that that you don't actually hit climate change on the nose or to talk too specifically about um, the environment. 
there's lots of different ways and um uh the the creatives in our industry will have uh, i think many more exciting ways that i can think of um but knowing where the high impact areas are um and trying to find ways to make it not preachy or um or doom and gloom i think is super important no i quite agree i think that's um that's well said thank you for that can i just jump in with a comment there um as a recent um convert to ev driving I've found it amazing that we haven't, in one of our big dramas, um, seen the chat that you get around uh, EV charging points being kind of utilized as a sort of kind of rover's return type focal point for a lot of these um, drama storytelling mechanisms. And actually, I, as a journalist, have found it really fascinating just how many little tidbits of information I pick up whilst on the road, stopping at a rapid charger and chatting to other people um, of the same, doing the same thing there from all sorts of different walks of lives. It's actually been a great source of getting sometimes stories or sometimes just little nuggets of information from, from some of these people. But they really have become, for people who are EV drivers, this, this sort of kind of microcosm of life where you, you, where you talk to people that you ordinarily wouldn't have been able to. And, and you know, for me, it's been, that's been a really fascinating part of my kind of journey. Yeah, no, I quite agree. I think that's um, definitely that's right for um, kind of introduction somehow. Maybe it's maybe it's drama, maybe it's comedy, maybe it's um. So, what kind of nuggets are you picking up in these? Um, oh, all sorts, all sorts, just all sorts of stuff about things that are going on and um, people people who just have really interesting backgrounds telling you little little bits of information about their industry. That's that you know, p- people that work in the oil and gas industry, I encounter quite a lot, at, particularly here in the northeast of Scotland and, and Aberdeen, um, and you know, providing quite an interesting insight into the impact that that the whole decarbonisation thing has been having on on their sector and how how much anxiety they feel about the changes that are coming as well. So, lots and lots of little bits of information. It's been quite it's been quite interesting. Our, our industry has got with um change i think uh, we're all probably kind of very aware of the power the create the power of creative industries in, in in moving audiences um but uh whilst we've been thinking about planet placement and um the tools and resources we can um use to help the industry think about um uh, uh about that opportunity we've looked at a few previous examples um of where there's been um uh, change affected by uh, the, the creative on-screen presence and um cheers uh the 1980 sitcom um in the us um uh, was sort of uh one of the first places to coin the phrase uh designated driver and that was in response to um a major societal issue that they had at the time with people um uh increasingly drink driving and there was a lot of um data around uh, fatalities relating to drink driver um, so um, that actually had uh, a direct impact um, and uh, drink driving associated fatalities uh, dropped um, and we're all familiar with the with the concept of a designated driver nowadays um, and it's a sin um, the uh, channel 4 show um, that came out last last year the drama um increased awareness on um, HIV and AIDS um, and uh, there was a 30% increase in um, 
calls to helplines relating to HIV and um, following the um, broadcast of that. Um, we, we, we've got form in this and um, there are multiple ways of doing it. And um, I think we, yeah, we've got a great opportunity. No, I you know, completely agree. I think that's, um, that's fascinating. I didn't know that about Cheers. Makes sense. You know, men in a bar, um, designated drivers. And you're right, that's going to change. It's just uh, something that kind of younger generations don't even contemplate now. Um, so the power of uh, our organisations is you know, definitely something which we could try and harness for this. Um, can I ask um, uh, Joanna, actually, a, a, a question about... Um, you know, in the smaller kind of indie uh, production area, do you think there should be more support offered to um, independent producers to enable them to um, to meet uh, sustainable production status on on new shows? Or do you feel there's pressure on the on on uh, the the smaller producers? And if so, you know, who should pay for it? Um, I don't I don't really think it should be encouraged. Uh, it's now in the mainstream. We know this is something that we have to tackle and we have to do more on. Um, we already have bodies that help support when it comes to smaller organisations, non-profit organisations, do with diversity and looking at other key areas. And I think sustainability has to be pushed up there higher as well to be considered. Um, again, as Karis mentioned, it's a contractual agreement with most broadcasters that... Um, you say no Talbert for any program we make. Um, and with that, I kind of feel the discussion has started very early with broadcasters. They are engaged. And when it comes to the discussions about budget, I think it should also be considered within the budget to look at sustainability options. And hopefully as a nation where we become more sustainable, um, it will bring in more affordable. Um, the demand will hopefully help to reduce the price and make things more affordable to generally be more sustainable. So, um, more of an abundance of electric cars and um, locations and, and ways to do that. Um, and it'd be the norm that any green goal that generally renewable energy. I, th- I think regional indies are part of the solution. Um, we wouldn't, at Albert, discriminate against a regional indie that didn't have access to. Um, uh, green vehicles or what have you um, but there are points associated with asking the question um, and showing that the, the local economy that the demand is there um, and then um, you know as Joanna's saying the kind of there's there's a, a cycle there um, and we can benefit from the underlying infrastructure that then will come in time as the economy shifts. Absolutely thank you um, Chloe if I might just um, ask you a question we talked about the kind of broadcast and the kind of streaming world. Um, and as new platforms and services launch, and they seem to be more announced um, every day, what should we look for as consumers to understand which might be better or worse from a sustainability perspective? Um, I think a good thing to address is looking at the kind of science-based targets that different companies might be setting as a consumer if you want to put an environmentally conscious spin on things. So um, we've recently at the BBC set our science-based target um, to reduce emissions of scope one and two emissions down to 1.5 degree warming uh, in line with the Paris, um, not the Paris Agreement, the the extra stipulation of the Paris Agreement or the, the desire. Um, 
And then also our scope three emissions, so things across our supply chain to a well below two degree uh, warming target and hope to reduce that further in the future. And other streaming providers will also be setting their objectives and may have already have targets that are published that you can look at in a detailed way. Also looking at the different shows that are available on different streaming platforms, uh, some content might have uh, a very strong uh, environmental messaging and a lot of uh, information about climate change uh, that might captivate audiences. In terms of understanding the uh, environmental impact of the uh, broadcast infrastructure and the streaming itself, uh, a lot of organizations are starting to make this public. Uh, we have published our research since uh, 2020. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess it's about the transparency and being able to access that information at the moment. Kevin, if I might just uh, ask a question for you, the, in terms of training, sustainability training is mandatory for many producers. Do you think that should be extended to other media executives? Yeah, I think, I think the, the furthest and the widest that you can get this kind of training, the better. I, I think there's um, a rapidly growing um, sense of awareness within news about um, sustainability issues that doesn't necessarily equate to um, changes. I think the changes seem to be slower in coming. Um, again, I think it's, I think it's driven by that fear of, of not being first with a story because the changes that you're making are, um, are somehow going to hinder your ability to deliver those new stories first or, or get to a scene, um, behind the, com the competition. But I think, I think the more um, awareness there is, and I think it would have to be, you know, particularly in news, it would have to be kind of tailored in a sense to news as well, because, because everything, uh, you know, a lot of the deployment decisions are made in just a moment's notice without the ability to, um, to really reflect and consider on um, the sustainability impact of a lot of the news deployments. But I think a lot of those changes are already coming and, and things like electric vehicles uh, are making a big difference. I've, I've just noticed um, in recent months from having one myself, uh, a level of interest coming from sometimes quite cynical colleagues about, how, you know, what, what with questions about what the range is and how many times I found myself, you know, being in the middle of nowhere with a flat battery um, and, and whether or not the infrastructure is able to cope with, you know, the, the desires of news to be able to get somewhere quickly, potentially on a long distance. So I think there is, I think there is an appetite for it. Those questions are starting to be asked by colleagues. So actually the more information that we can put their way in a tailored way, the better for, for improving what we obviously all want to achieve. I've also been privy to some of those cynical conversations around um, electric vehicles and uh, people being skeptical about that. But I think it's really interesting what you've just said, because uh, making these things uh, business as usual in terms of not wanting to fall behind because some an environmental decision might not be uh, the natural decision to make or the easiest decision to make. And it's really putting in place these things so that they are normal and business as usual. For example, using uh, renewable electricity as usual in your buildings instead of running on fossil fuels is a low-hanging fruit and something that could be implemented and have a very low impact on the overall business. Very good. Thank you. Well, look, we're coming to the end of our session. Can I ask each of you um, in turn 
to one top tip uh, as a final takeaway. So if I could start some um, Karis with you. Well, how not to say everything that we've already said. Um, I think uh, the recommendation to switch your energy supply to a green tariff is a very good one, very easy, um, and um, does affect systemic change. Um, make sure you're um, asking questions, even if you cannot um, shift to green alternatives at this point, um, su- support them um, in whatever way you can. Um, and think about your brain print um, as well as your footprint. I guess it relates to the previous point that if you ask about these things, if you show support, um, if you use it, the creative opportunity, um, you, you may affect more change than just your own uh, common footprint. Uh, yeah, I like it. Brain print. That's good. Um, Joanna? I think being open. I think being open to the changes and knowing that even the small things that you do make a difference. Um, and reflecting what you do in your everyday life should be brought into what you do at work at the same time. So, yeah, going up and go. Excellent. Thank you. Chloe? I mean, I will probably advocate everything that's already been said, but as a consumer, definitely your electricity supply, your transport choices, perhaps your dietary choices, if that's an option to you, but also using your voice. So trying to advocate for transparency, uh, talk to your MP or talk to businesses and really kind of promote and push that um, want for green infrastructure. Excellent. Thank you. And Kevin? Yeah, I would say it's important to, for people to be aware of how rapidly a lot of the technologies that are available for solving some of these problems are changing. Um, a, a lot of people, just on the EV theme, a lot of people um, have said to me, oh, but you know, they only go 120 miles, something like that on their range. And that's because the last time they looked into it was five years ago, four years ago, when the range was much lower. Um, and that's one example, but actually the tools and the options for fixing a lot of these problems within our industry are changing rapidly. And it's just being open to realizing that, you know, what you researched three, three years ago might be very, very different in terms of outlook just now. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thank you very much to all of uh, the wonderful panelists for joining us uh, and sharing their expertise. Thank you uh, very much indeed. For all those uh, out there, please do spread the word. Talk about sustainability, as we said, spread that message. So um, with that, I'll thank you very much and um, and leave it there. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. The RTS London Podcast. <laughs>